Welcome and good afternoon. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian. I am co-hosting today and uh, in studio with me is Pastor Peter Martin. We are live streaming from Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, Arizona. We're a local church here in Tucson and we do this uh, daily, every weekday, a Bible answer program where you can follow us on various social media platforms or our website and you can ask questions and engage with us here uh, questions about God's existence, about the Bible, how to apply certain passages, or how to interpret certain passages that maybe make us scratch our heads from time to time. Uh, is there continuity in the Bible? What about other religions and other faiths? All those and so much more that we uh, t- topics that we tackle here on the program, and we would love for you to join us. So if you're new and you're kind of thinking, wow, I can just ask any question, yes, you can ask any question. And uh, we have our Bible experts here <laughs> who will tackle your question. And uh, if you want to join us, if you want to engage with us, if you're watching, you're probably on one of our social media platforms as I'm speaking here. But um, <clears throat> starting off, we live stream to Facebook, and uh, you can just go to Facebook.com if you don't have an account. I believe in order to watch the live stream, you have to have a Facebook account, unfortunately. But if you do, you can go to our page, which is at CCF Tucson, and that's Facebook.com slash at CCF Tucson, and you can follow us there. You can chat your question, and we'll tackle that question live as we live stream. We also live stream to YouTube, and of course, if you're following us or watching us on any of these social media platforms, please remember to like, follow, share, comment, subscribe, and hit that notification bell so that you can know when we're live streaming. We do live stream all our services Um, our weekday services, our weekend services, special events, and so much more. So feel free to do that so you can keep in touch with us. Our YouTube handle is A Reason for Hope 546. So if you just go to YouTube, you can either do a search, A Reason for Hope, and look for the little um, Reason for Hope symbol, or just type in that handle and that'll get you there as well. Our senior pastor, Scott Richards, has a, a, a... kind of a, a very cool Twitter account that uh, he's always making uh, you know comments on certain events, uh, Bible prophecy, always being monitored. So if you wanted to just tweet your question or a question, even though you're not watching the program on Twitter, we'd encourage you to follow Pastor Scott Richards. And his Twitter handle is at ScottR4H. That's ScottR4H. <clears throat> And lastly, uh, you can also watch our live streams here on our website. That's calvarychristianfellowship.com, calvarychristianfellowship.com. And when you get to the site, if you're uh, eager to just catch the current service or this broadcast, A Reason for Hope, you can just hit that Watch Live tab there. And then you can engage with other people. You can actually ask questions, even make prayer requests during the live stream, and we'll monitor that as well. And finally... uh, Um, If you just want to watch the services, you can do so via our church app. We have an app which has a great little digital Bible. You can take notes. You can join like prayer groups, start chat groups, uh, follow up with current events that are taking place here at Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. And that app is available on iTunes and the Google Play Store. And we also have channels on all Amazon Fire products and Roku. So if you just want to watch our services as they're being live streamed, you can watch them there as well. Now, as far as asking questions, if you want to do it a little bit more anonymously, such as maybe the old-fashioned way, sending an email, you can do so at questionsforhope at gmail.com. 
That's questions for hope, all spelled out at gmail.com. <clears throat> so we have uh, some interesting things to cover today, I guess. But um, uh, tragedy has struck. And uh, uh, before we take questions from our viewers, we always take a moment to pray and ask the Lord to be with us. And uh, I want to sort of add to that prayer time that we're going to have right now. Uh, a very unfortunate event that took place at a uh, private Christian uh, school in Nashville. Uh, Covenant School in uh, Nashville is a pre-K through 6th grade. And uh, this morning around 10 a.m., uh, a female person uh, went and shot up the school and um, killed three nine-year-old children, as far as we know so far, as well as three faculty members. And uh, we'll probably talk a little bit about that today, but uh, we thought we should take a moment to pray for the families, the community, and our country as we continue to wrestle with the increased violence we've been seeing over the last several years. So we'll take a moment to do that right now and uh, also pray for the program. Mm -hmm. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your love and your grace in our lives that uh, for those of us who've, who've gotten to experience what it means to be born again, what it means to know you and your word and and follow the truth. And uh, whenever we peer into the world, we are grieved. So we are grieved and grieve with the families, the community, uh, the city of Nashville, and our country as we face the fact that evil exists. Evil people do evil things. And uh, we just ask for clarity. We ask for uh, tremendous grace on the authorities as they investigate why this took place, how it took place, and of course the families who lost loved ones. We lift them up to you. We ask you to pour your love on them as fellow believers. We ask that you would uh, just comfort um, those families in that community right now. And we also ask that you'd give us grace as we <clears throat> attempt to uh, Communicate your perfect word as imperfect human beings. And we pray this in the only name that we can pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah, so I, I heard about this as well earlier on today, but just before the show, me and Adrian were talking about it and gave me some of the details that I, I hadn't heard. Um, the fact that this person uh, identified as a male, the fact that this was a private school in a very nice area within Nashville, and I guess... One of the ways that we can talk about this, we can look at it uh, beyond just the idea that there is a lot of grieving there and that these people should be in our prayers and we should be thinking, I mean, I, as a parent, I don't know if there's anything more terrifying than have your having your child murdered in that kind of a way, like a public way like that. Um, it, it's just an incredible tragedy. As we look at it, though, it is important to sometimes evaluate why someone might do something like this. Like, what is it that motivates someone to behave in this kind of a way? Um, this is a, a unique thing about the modern era. These types of shootings, they're called rampage shootings, and they're different than most types of killings that we've seen throughout world history. So uh, throughout world history, there's always been people that have killed others. This is not a new innovation within the United States, but it, it was always with some sort of a purpose. So uh, for instance, when you look at Jesus's day, Jesus even instructs his followers to carry with them swords. He says, if you've got a cloak, sell it and take a sword with you. And 
the type of sword he's talking about would be like a personal defense weapon, right? It would be something that would enable you to cut your meat as well as to protect yourself on the road. And what he's talking about is there, there were roving bandits. There were roving thieves that would go around and prey on pilgrims as they went from one place to another. So throughout world history, there have been these, these bands, these gang members, these various tribal, warring tribal uh, faculties that would go back and forth towards one another. There's always been killing. There's always been murder. There's always been bloodshed. What's unique about our present time, and the reason why a story like this really hits us, is because all those killings are understandable to one level or another, right? It's understandable for someone to go out and rob and murder someone. It, maybe it's not something that we think is good, right? It's obviously incredibly evil, but we get it, right? I, I understand why someone would do that. This type of killing, it seems so non-discriminate and there's no profit for the killer, right? This person's not going in there to rob the place. They're not going in there to get something. And they're not acting on behalf of a group or an organization, right? They're not going in there because they're a member of a foreign country and they're coming into our country in order to do damage, kind of like what happened in 9-11, right? This is a citizen of the United States, a person who used to attend this school, a young <clears throat> woman who felt it necessary to go in and to target specifically kids, right? These aren't people mm -hmm. who have ever hurt her in any personal way. This is not revenge shooting, and it's non-discriminate. It's not like she had a specific target in mind when she went in there. It's just, I'm going to kill as many people as I can. Other than the school itself. Other than the school ha itself. Having attended there and, and the fact that uh, they found a manifesto, which they have not released any details about yet, right? but there was detailed maps and a plan to commit as much murder as possible. That's right. And so in Jesus's day, when Jesus was going to address what you would call murder or violence, the main passage that he looked at was love your neighbor as yourself. And what he was trying to point to is that various societies have always had this idea that we should love members of our own community, if you want to put it that way. There's, there is a sense of honor among thieves. So even these pirates or these various robbing bands, they would respect one another, but they would just rob everybody else, right? Everybody else is a target. And that's what happens when you get into tribalistic communities. They're very loving towards one another, but everybody else, they're very, very violent towards. When Jesus is addressing the love your neighbor as yourself passage, what he's saying is God's love is unique in that it considers every man to be a neighbor, right? That's the whole point of the story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritans would have been hated people by the Jews. And so by using a Samaritan person as the hero of the story, what he's showing is that it doesn't matter what your ethnicity or background is, you can love others in a way that you would yourself like to be loved, right? That's the whole point. We need to act in that way according to Christ. What's unique about the present moment is that you're dealing with people who don't consider anyone a part of their tribalistic community. They might have some vague, radicalized group that they give obeisance to online, but they're not doing this for anybody that they know in person, right? These are just people filled with anger and rage who kind of hate the world to such an extent that, again, they're not, these aren't calculated strategic attacks in the sense that even though she had plans and a manifesto, it's not like she's targeting specific people with the intent of bringing about a terrorist organization's agenda or something like that. It's just, I'm going to do as much damage as I can and get killed in the process. That's really scary 
that people in our modern age have been driven to something like that. Uh, so what is it about our current moment where shootings like this are becoming more and more rampant, where people feel disconnected from any viable community? And the only type of unification that they have any amount of uh, fealty to would be unifications of hate and discontent. Uh, even I remember as a kid, the Columbine shooters were the first kind of big school shooters that uh, came to prominence. And their whole they targeted Christians, and their whole idea was just, we're atheists, we're nihilists, the human race is, is a plague on the earth, and we're going to kill as many kids as we can. But they did specifically target Christian kids within their own school uh, to make a statement of what they were doing. There are many factors that you could look at within our country that have caused this kind of diseased mindset to appear. I think the rise in people being just disconnected from any type of community is pretty large. People that don't feel like they belong, people that don't feel like they have an identity. And believe it or not, there is a strong correlation to the rise of LGBT and the rise of this type of mindset. It's because people feel disconnected. They don't feel like they have a place that they call home, right? Traditionally in human history, people have found these tribalistic groups, these neighbors, these people that they can have relations with through shared common interests and desires. You know, you go to church, you create a church community, you find people that you love within that community, you develop relations within that community. But now people go to church and they don't develop community. They go there, they listen to a sermon, and they leave. It's mm -hmm. it's no different than going to a movie theater, right? You don't make friends with people you go to the movie theater with. You just go, you are entertained in an audience, and then you leave. And that's kind of how a lot of people attend mm -hmm. church nowadays. It's an auditorium. It's something that you do. And even if you, you know, shake people's hands a little bit before and after the service, you don't know those people. Mm -hmm. You're not developing relationships with them. Now, is that the product of our culture that we have been infected by, or is that the fault of the church not being more communal in an example? I think, I think it's technically both. I think that it's the church being affected by the cultural move as opposed to the other way around. So uh, as our culture teaches people that there is nothing about you that's significant except for who you think you are, right? Inner authenticity is the greatest good that you could pursue. Because of that, there is nothing that really binds us together, right? We're not proud about being Americans, at least if we were nationalistic, that would be something that bound us. We're not yeah. proud of our faith. We're not proud of any our, our race or our gender. We're not really proud of anything except for these marginalized victim classes that people want to find uh, adherence to to gain social credibility. So there's, there's nothing positive you can do that gives you a sense of self and belonging. And so there are only negative things really you can do, right? I could be marginalized and I could feel like I belong as a result of that because people innately in our country do feel marginalized. They do feel like they don't belong. They do feel like they have nothing that they're living for uh, because they've been disconnected from all sense of meaning and purpose. Would you say that's a, because of a lack of community, not because they're actually marginalized, not because there's the majority are trying to oppress them and trying to push them out of our society. It's really because we're all disconnected. Right. No, it's a good distinction. So it's not that they're actively being oppressed, but I think some people have turned cruel, which I'll talk about in a little bit. It's not that they're actively being oppressed per se. It's that they're just not able to connect with people. And so they feel as though they're oppressed, right? To be alone is an oppressive feeling. To feel like nobody understands you or nobody wants you around mm. is itself a, a very destructive feeling to go through. I think Alexis de Tocqueville, when he toured America, 
and he wrote his famous essay about uh, democracy in America, he said that in our politics, people aren't treated the way that he would see it in other countries. Usually dissent, uh, when you would dissent from the, I guess you'd call it the majority rule within your country or nation, you would be openly oppressed, right? They'd lock you in the prison. They would send you away. You would be executed, things like that. He's like, in America, they don't really do that. He's like, that's better in some ways. But in some ways, what do you do? And he had this famous quote where he said, you will keep your lands, your property, and your rights. But one thing we will take from you is your place in society. So that's kind of how America has dealt with dissidents, people that we don't like, is we shun them uh, societally. Once again, that is something that we've done in a negative sense prior, but now it's like we don't know how to positively build any sense of community anymore. I mean, how many people even listening to the show just feel lonely, alienated, like they don't have a place? And to know that there are groups and organizations that just by saying, hey, I, 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 I identify this way or I think this way, I'm attracted this way, you'll get applauded. Who wouldn't want that, right? Who wouldn't want some sense of belonging that they can achieve just by identifying in a particular way? And they already feel marginalized, alienated, and othered. So why wouldn't they go with these other misfit groups? And that's kind of what the LGBT community has become. It's become a center for misfits. Uh, Carl Truman, who wrote his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he pointed out something really interesting that I never thought about, uh, about the LGBT community. And he's like, even when it was just LGBT, he's like, you got to realize all those letters were antagonistic towards one another, all of them in the 90s. And it makes sense. He's like, you know who a lot of people, a lot of the members of the lesbian community were? Radical feministic women. You know who they don't like? Men. No, they especially wouldn't like men who only like other men, you know, and then the same thing with the the uh, the gay men. A lot of the gay men didn't like women. They were actually radically chauvinistic towards a lot of the women. And both of them really hated the trans and the bi uh, the bisexual community because the bisexual community was considered like, well, you're passing. And the T was considered, well, you're throwing off our whole agenda because you're suggesting that men and women are transferable, that a man can become a woman and a woman can become a man. Our whole idea is that gender is fixed and I'm I am attracted to a member of my own sex mm -hmm. or a member of my own gender. So he talked about in the early early days, there were, was no cohesion between the LGBT community until AIDS broke out. Mm. And the AIDS epidemic unified the LGBT community because it was an existential threat to their existence. And then through that, they developed this community that, again, wasn't around a positive vision of how they wanted the world to look but it was around marginalization. We're victimized, we're oppressed. That's our communal bond. And that led to the rise of the philosophy of intersectionality, which I'm not gonna get into right now. But uh, again, a lot of young people feeling alienated, feeling isolated and alone, they would want some sort of adherence to a community like that. And because of that, they're, that that's what they're seeking. They're seeking some sort of identification within their life. Uh, they don't feel a lot of, these young people don't even feel connected to their families. But again, uh, Jonathan Edwards, famous Christian theologian, he wrote a book called True Virtue and Common Virtue. And he talked about how what primarily keeps man civilized, if you want to put it that way, is fear of consequences and joy in prosperity. So in other words, the majority of people, the reason why I treat individuals correctly is because I don't want recourse. 
right? So even though there are many times where I may want to scream and shout at uh, a checker out, at someone who's checking me out at, at Walmart or hit them in the face or something like that, I don't do that because I know I would get arrested. Or I don't do that because I know that people would look at me funny and I would cause a scene, right? So there are consequences that I'm afraid of or consequences that I'm seeking that would disable me from doing some of the worst mm. predations of my flesh. In modern society, we've taken out a lot of those things that kept us civilized by creating and cultivating identity that's primarily in social media. There are no repercussions from acting out in social media. People mm -hmm. can behave terribly to one another in social media with no repercussions. So has bullying always existed? Absolutely. But there's a reason why in old movies, it's usually like the bully of the school, right? There's like one guy who's like the bully of a school because he's a big guy. He has a troubled past. He doesn't know how else to get out his aggression, so he picks on little kids, not knowing that everyone hates him as a result. He's receiving negative consequences, so most people don't choose the life of a bully. In modern day, on social media, because there are no consequences, many people have become bullies on social media. Mm. Uh, many children have become incredibly <clears throat> dismissive, antagonistic, destructive in their interactions with one another because these consequences that they're used to having don't exist at the same level that they existed when people just interacted in person. <clears throat> and so once again, these online communities become the basis of our society, especially with COVID, mm. disconnecting these kids. And therefore, with a total disconnection from any type of community, it gives rise to these types of tendencies. You know, we, we used to call people like this sociopaths, right? A sociopath used to be an aberration within society. It used to be this really interesting, broken individual that we couldn't fully understand, like a Jeffrey Dahmer or Jack the Ripper, somebody who just, for whatever reason, didn't see themselves as a member of the human race and so was violent against everyone around them. And they were, again, these really, really rare individuals. I think we're going to see a much bigger rise of people like that. This sociopathic mindset mm -hmm. is going to be bigger and bigger as people don't have a society that they adhere to. They don't have community that they see themselves as a part of. Now, as a Christian, we're a little bit different. Our community, like Jonathan Edwards said, he says, hey, common virtue is a good thing because it keeps your streets clean, man. <laughs> like you shouldn't disparage it and say, well, everyone should do, have true virtue. True virtue is doing the right thing because it's the right thing, right? Everybody should have true virtue, but he says, common virtue at least keeps people from killing you. So be thankful for it. But as a Christian, we should be pursuing what he would call true virtue, and that is, I am doing this because God has told me to do it, and I don't care if there are consequences or not. I'm going to do the right thing because it's the right thing. And communities are incredibly helpful and encouraging in that behavior. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Stir up love and good works. That's Hebrews chapter 10 in one another. But it's not a necessity for the Christian who's walking after mm. God, right? Jesus was literally alone when he died for our sins, and he did it anyway because it was the right thing. Mm. So as Christians, we're trying to cultivate this true virtue, but even that only occurs when my unification with God is strong enough, that love of God is strong enough to enable me to do all good things in his name. Um, so as a Christian, again, we should mourn over this. We should weep over it. It's very sad. I think it's even more sad that there's going to be, an, there has been and will continue to be an increase of individuals who will harm themselves and others because they feel this lack of any type of unification. If you are a parent in these times, you know, 
basically any type of community that you could get your kid a part of is mm-hmm. going to be beneficial to them, yeah. right? If you could get them in a sport, if you could get them in something where they have like goals and aspirations with other people is going to be beneficial. But the best possible community to cultivate is a church community, mm-hmm. is this idea that we are pursuing <clears throat> God and he is the focal point of why we are meeting together and why we are hanging out together and enjoying the company of one another. Uh, and churches no. should try their best. I mean, our church is, and, and I know that other churches are as well, try their best not to necessarily increase the numbers within your church, but to increase the cohesion within your church. Mm. That should be a, a noble goal of any church that is standing in these really difficult times. It seems that these issues start very young. Yeah. I can only imagine, I mean, this person, she had a maps of the school, very detailed plan, I'm so obviously, and yeah, and, and and 28 years old. So it's been at least, you know, a dozen or more years since she attended school there, and whatever that person experienced, obviously contributed to their animosity to want to shoot up the school that they went to. Right. And if they are identifying as part of the trans community, right. and this is a private Christian school, hmm. I can only imagine that if she stood out as tomboyish or something like that growing up, if there was a lot of bullying involved, and then as she developed her her own sense of self based on her emotions that you described, uh, she is now rejected by this community, doesn't have a community, has to now be a part of another community, and uh, that becomes very challenging. Yeah, it develops animosity towards those who rejected her. And and a lot of times, like I said, even, even with a guy like Hitler, who was incredibly evil, a lot of times when you study the life of Hitler, the, the crazy thing about it is you see similar things. He was an artist. He felt rejected. He didn't have many friends. He was a World War I veteran. And then he came back to a country after they lost the war and didn't. he saw a lack of pride within his country. And he, in his own mind, created a boogeyman. Hmm. He created a target to funnel all of his rage into. And Germany followed suit. They said, this is great. You know, we're all very, very upset. We don't know who to target. And so here's this convenient fall person that we're going to funnel all of our hatred and animosity towards. Christians, by the way, have served as his role throughout history, right? Through the inception of the church. We have been that group that people like to target to uh, funnel all their rage and animosity towards. But oftentimes, again, these people are just deeply upset with their lives. They just don't feel like they belong. They just hate everybody. And so they find some target, someone who's done them wrong in some way to funnel all of their hatred and then go out and do these these crazy and really destructive things. I mean, think about how many people have been bullied in school and how many of them actually go out and commit acts of violence. You know, the, the numbers are very low. The percentages are very low. The point is, is not like this person was bullied and so they did it. Mm-hmm. The point is there was something broken in this person mm-hmm. to which bullying pushed them over the edge. Something was wrong, though, before the bullying even started, mm-hmm. and it pushed them over the edge. Uh, there, there was a movie came out. Can't really recommend it, uh, not only because it's hyper-violent, but also because I just it wasn't my favorite movie, uh, The Joker with Joaquin Phoenix. Mm. And I remember when the movie came out, people were like, oh, my gosh, like, everyone's going to watch this movie and it's going to radicalize people and it's going to cause them to commit acts of terror and everyone's freaking out. They were trying to get the, the movie banned. I went and watched it and I don't know if the writer of the movie intended this or not, 
But the Joker himself makes this point. So as he's committing his acts of violence, the city's rising up and they're starting to commit acts of violence and it's becoming very anarchic and things like that. And people accuse him of causing the problem. And he says, I didn't cause the problem, right? If, if me committing an act of violence causes you to commit an act of violence, that's just something about you. And it's such a good point. If I could watch a movie and say, I want to go kill people, there's something really wrong with me prior to going to see that movie. Mm -hmm. People say, well, guns are the reason. If you could pick up a gun and say, I'm going to go shoot innocent kids with this, that's not a problem with a gun. That's a you problem. There's something really, really broken within you. Mm. And I don't think enough people are trying to figure out what it is that's broken with these people. They want to blame, they want to blame these external sources that are convenient and easy to yell at because they're so obvious. And they don't want to take a look at the more endemic problems with our society at large. Uh, because, yeah, you have these really small percentage of people that will do these incredibly heinous acts of violence. But how many kids feel this? And maybe they won't commit an act of violence against their peers, but they'll cut themselves or they'll commit suicide mm -hmm. or they'll just stay alienated for the rest of their life. Living in their parents' house as just a vacant husk of an individual and never strive for being or liveliness or good. You know, so it, having this really destructive, toxic culture we need to ask, what is it about our culture that's making people do this? We're more prosperous than any other nation on earth. Mm -hmm. Why are people choosing these acts of violence or despair or depravity? What is going on? And it's the disconnection from the roles within society that give us purpose and meaning, as well as, I would say, the, the rules that govern our behavior that people are throwing off. Uh, and that is what builds that, uh, that unifying community that gives us, again, a sense of belonging, which is what we're all looking for. Uh, one of the books I read after I got back from my first deployment was uh, Homecoming and Belonging by Sebastian Younger. It was a book about tribes. And he makes that point. He makes that point about the benefits of tribal communities that enable them to have superior mental health than the West, even though they don't have the practice of psychiatry. And it's, it's a really fascinating book. And I based my own book, Fellowship of Suffering, largely on that book and that concept that we see spelled out for us so clearly in scripture that we have, we are built as individuals with the need of community. When God creates Adam alone, he says, it's not good for man to be alone. And he surrounds Adam with animals and he says, man, there's no companion that is comparable to him. So he's not saying that a single man, meaning that a man that's not married is innately a bad thing, but he is saying that a man devoid of community is a very bad thing. A man that doesn't have some sort of communal life is a very bad thing. Why? Because we're made in the image and likeness of God. Mm. God is a communal being. God has three persons within the unifying bond of his being. And so when he creates mankind, we're not meant to be alone. We're not meant to be isolated. We are meant to be unified. You need that, whether you understand it intellectually or not. That really ties into what you were talking to me about earlier, Marquis de Sade yeah. as a philosophy. There seems to be a tandem here. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll probably talk more about it probably next Monday. Yeah. But a um, philo uh, French philosopher, give quick background and the, the, the gist of the philosophy and how we're kind of living it out. Yeah. As we... Yeah, no. So the Marquis de Sade, uh, throughout the last couple of weeks, I've been going over various philosophers that have led to the decline of the West. And the Marquis de Sade was a really evil, evil man who lived during the time of the French Revolution. He was a libertine, and he took seriously the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Uh, now, Rousseau, 
famously said, and I've been talking about it in the last couple of weeks, Rousseau famously talked about how uh, we are essentially higher animals. There's nothing special about mankind, and therefore what degrades us is society, and that's what corrupts our nature, and we need to kind of tear down society and build up a better one that led to the French Revolution. Dessau just took that one step further and he says, well, if we're just higher animals, then why do we feel the need to be virtuous at all, right? Uh, if, if I'm stronger than you and I could take from you what I want and you're too weak to defend yourself, why is it wrong for me to do so? Why should I love my neighbor as myself? Why should I care for the weak and the destitute? And so he did. He, he lived out his philosophy. He uh, would actually buy prostitutes and torture and rape them. Uh, we actually get our word sadism from his name. So one of the most evil individuals to ever live, but he was a brilliant philosopher on top of that. And no one could really refute his argumentation, right? If you're going to throw out God and you're just going to say we're a higher animal, why is the Marquis de Sade wrong? And a lot of these really psychotic individuals, again, without any cosmic obligations, anything higher than themselves to live up to or even to try to live up to, uh, bereft of any type of role within society or rule that would govern their behavior, why wouldn't they do what they want, right? We're telling kids all the time, be your own God, follow <clears throat> your heart. Well, what if your heart tells you to do something like mm -hmm. this? What's wrong with that? And the only thing that would prevent you is the preservation of your own life. But if you're struggling with suicidal ideation right. and you could care less about your life, yeah. then logic dictates, I'm going to take as many people with me as I can. Exactly. And there's nothing but blackness after this anyway. Right, so if there's if I'm going to nothing, mm. I, it's like turning off a computer. Right? It's not tragic when I turn off a computer or I break a computer. It's not tragic. Why? Because who cares? It's 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 just a computer. It's just a bunch of numbers, ones and zeros. It's just information, uh, right? If you turn off a human being, if you kill a human being, and that's it, their consciousness doesn't go on. I have done you no great harm, mm. right? If if I kill you now, or cancer kills you fifty years from now, what difference mm -hmm. does it make? Right, And this nihilistic philosophy is so insidious, it's so evil, it's so wicked, and people don't really see it. That's how I usually converse when I'm talking to someone who's not a believer and who's angry at the church for dismissing them. Let's say they're part of the LGBT community. <clears throat> and you know, as an entertainer, I've had developed a lot of friendships, working with a lot of people who are on the full, anywhere on the spectrum yeah. of, of how... Uh, their sexuality and celebrating whatever it is that they feel, and and they would you know ask me oh wow you're a Christian no, that's you know back in the '90s it was a lot easier because people were very open to talking or unlike today it seems it's a lot more difficult but uh, I would always bring them back and say okay well like for example um, someone asked me recently what's wrong with that what's wrong with someone and they were specifically asking about their partner who was transitioning. Hmm. So a family member of mine who's uh, in a relationship with someone who's transitioning and uh, and said, what's wrong with that? And so I, I tried to ask, okay, well, before we ask that, before we answer that question of what's wrong with behavior X, hmm. you have to ask the question, what's wrong with anything right. first? Because right. if you can't even tell me what's wrong with torturing babies for fun right. or what's wrong with committing mass shootings, what's wrong with uh, killing innocent animals, right. anything, right. anything at all, you think of it, you tell me why it's wrong, and then we can start by developing a common ground. And usually that's when the conversation ends right. because most people haven't thought through. They only do things based on rewards and punishment. Right. And that's what happens when... 
child morality is developed. If you study courses in child, early childhood development, moral development, in the beginning of stages of a child's development is all based on rewards and punishment. Right. Kids do what's right because they get punished for doing what's wrong right. or they're rewarded for doing good. Right. But then they reach a, a, a stage of maturation where now it's based on a, what's called the role model stage. At a certain point, you can no longer punish a child or reward them for doing good and bad. Mm. They are now basing their morality on their role model. Right. And that's where community is so essential. Right. I was bullied as a kid. I hated my childhood. I was physically, sexually, <laughs> verbally abused throughout my childhood. Mm. Um, if it had not been for the Christian community and me being accepted and, and given the next stage of that moral development, which is the role model stage, sure, I was punished for doing bad and rewarded for doing good to a certain extent, but if I didn't have a positive role model, I could have just as easily ended up in prison. <laughs> like, very easily could have been a kid who turned violent, angry, and ended up in prison. Right. But because older men and women came into my life, showed me love and compassion and acceptance, and became role models where I thought, I want to be like them rather than the people that I could have chosen for my role models, which would have been peers who were probably not good for me. And of course, the third stage of moral development, which, which you described, is <clears throat> where people do what's right and wrong based on the fact that it's right and wrong. Right. right. In that stage, most adults haven't reached right. <laughs> of moral development, unfortunately. No, absolutely. Yeah. But that that objective standard for right and wrong, if you can't even point to one, don't waste your time arguing with someone about why uh, adultery is wrong or why cohabitation is, there's no reason to even have the conversation if you cannot agree if there's anything wrong with anything. There has to be a moral standard right. to point to, a point of reference that we can agree on. And if, and if it's not God, then it's whatever society or whatever the individual wants to come up with. This is the problem. You know, you need to have a sense of meaning and purpose to develop any type of moral system or ethical system. So if I were to say, like, what is the, what is the appropriate way to use this laptop? Well, the only way I can know what's good for this laptop is if I know what it's for, right? If I have no idea what it's for, then I don't know what's good for it. So for instance, there is an appropriate way for me to use it. If you saw me using it as a hammer, you would tell me, Peter, that's a wrong way to use the laptop. You'd be like, well, who are you to tell me what's the right way to use this mm -hmm. laptop? Like, where's your standard come from? And you'd say, well, it was designed. It was designed for a purpose. You're going <clears throat> against its purpose. You're damaging it, right? So it's wrong. It's objectively mm. wrong for you to do that. But if I were using a rock, to use as a hammer, you couldn't tell me I was wrong to do that. Why? Because it's not designed. There's no design for the rock. There's no purpose for the rock. I could use it as a hammer. I could use it as a chisel. I could use it to, uh, you know, throw it at somebody. I could use it to, uh, say, smash something smaller. I could use the rock however I want because it doesn't have a purpose. And therefore, there is no good. And then there is no right and wrong when it comes to the usage thereof. Uh, this is what philosophers have understood since the beginning of mankind, mm. secular, atheist, whatever, they've all understood this. You need to assign some sort of a purpose to an object before you could talk about right and wrong. What's the purpose for our existence? And that's what you meant by when you said Marquis de Sade was a brilliant philosopher, right. in that even though the premises of his philosophy were corrupt and evil and right. incorrect, right. atheism, right. but his logical outworkings of his philosophy were accurate. Right. And that's why it was so difficult to refute. Like many of the existential writers, Albert Camus and right. Sartre, they all concluded, well, if atheism is true, if God is dead, 
then the last question of philosophy is suicide. Right. Why live at all? Right. Why do it? There is no purpose or end in anything. There's right. no telos to, to, to living. <laughs> right. There's no purpose. And, you know, the lack of purpose, the lack of meaning, it not only totally annihilates any ethical framework from which we can operate from, but that is the centerpiece of human existence, right? The fact that we can derive meaning from anything is one of the unique qualities of human beings, right? Animals don't need that. Animals don't need an ultimate meaning for life, right? If I have a dog, he is totally content to just lay on the staircase, drink some water, go out and take a dump, and then come back in and do the whole thing all over again. He doesn't need to ask ultimate questions. What am I here for? What am I doing? You know, like, what, where am I going in life, right? Animals don't do that because animals don't need an ultimate purpose. Mankind does because we're made in the image and likeness of God. This is in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 10. He has placed eternity in our hearts. So therefore, ultimate meaning and purpose is something that human beings need. To steal it from somebody is to do them the greatest wrong possible, mm. right? Uh, Viktor Frankl, who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, uh, he talked about it. He talked about like how people would go through the concentration camps. He was a survivor of the Holocaust, survivor of three different, uh, three different concentration camps. And he said that the Nazis could take from you a lot, but if you had a meaning behind what you're going through, you can endure anything. But if you had no meaning, you couldn't go through anything, right? You couldn't endure it. He even described how some of the most strapping, physically able men didn't last very long, right. even though some of the more skinny people who you thought would fade away quickly in these camps right. survived because they were grasping onto a higher purpose or meaning. I, I I read the book when I on my first tour of Germany. I had was working at the World's Fair and I had one day off for mm. the entire month that I was working. I was doing five shows a day, outreach events. You know, so we were sharing the gospel with I think eleven thousand Germans <laughs> saw the program during that time. And I had one day off, so I took an overnight train to Poland, went to Auschwitz, and uh, spent the day there. And the whole time, during the whole trip, I was reading the book, and it was mm. uh, kind of surreal to be standing in gas chambers, walking through the fields in Auschwitz, and, and then having read his story. Uh, it was really life-changing. And one thing that he points out uh, throughout the book is where do we derive meaning and purpose from? Where do we get it? Even if we believe in God, where do we primarily get our understanding of what God wants from us? Even that is through community. So he, he talks about the love of his wife, being the driving factor for what he was doing and why he was doing it. So it's like, yeah, we believe in God, but how do I understand? I mean, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Meaning, I, and John points this out as well, you, you haven't seen God, but you've seen mm -hmm. your neighbor. The way that you do good to God is by doing good to your neighbor, right? So you, you have to use the representations he's provided with you in order to derive meaning. So again, I derive meaning and purpose from what I ought to do. And what I ought to do is derive from what I am here to do. And that is to be in community with other people. Mm. That's how you derive meaning. If you sacrifice that, if you sacrifice community, you sacrifice meaning. If you sacrifice meaning, you sacrifice ethics. And if you sacrifice ethics, you sacrifice any reason to not do acts of violence towards yourself and others, mm. right? You, you lose everything when you go down that <clears throat> path. So the only thing preventing the total annihilation from our society, even though most people have this kind of nihilistic view of the world, is because they have these communities that are anchoring them. But you take that away from people and it's gone, right? Mm. There's no more anchor. 
and people are just going to be free floating and they're going to cling to whatever gives them some semblance of purpose. Well, if you're watching, I'd encourage you to go to our YouTube archives for a reason for hope. It's under different categories, different topics, and go through and look up some of the ones that deal with God's existence and the historicity of the Bible and the resurrection, because that's what gives us genuine, eternal meaning in life, mm. not just temporal meaning, which was my only disappointment with Viktor Frankl's well, yeah. <laughs> conclusion was that it was temporal. It right. wasn't It wasn't ultimate meaning and right. purpose, but um, uh, we do ground our existence in, in the fact that God created us in his image, that we have genuine value. If you take out God, you have no purpose giver, so no purpose. You have no law giver, so there's no moral law, and you have no value because there's no value giver in an objective, eternal sense. Sure, I can maybe give you value, but it's temporary. And it's only between you and I. Uh, if the rest of society disagrees, then there goes that. And so if you base morality based on what your neighbor thinks or what society thinks, well, what do you do when one society thinks that your society should die? Right. Uh, how do you resolve that? Oh, well, you have to get a bigger stick, and that's the world you'd end up living in. Right. And that's kind of the world that we live in now because most of the world has rejected the idea that God created us in his image. Well, not most of the world, but we're living it out that way. Mm. Uh, sadly, there's more people that believe in God, but yet it seems that governmentally we're living out Functional atheists. Yeah, yeah, functional atheism. Well, <clears throat> I'd encourage you to check those out. Uh, God is real. He loves you, and he has a plan for your life. And uh, I'd encourage you to, if you're n not a theist, if you don't believe that God is real or if you struggle with that, check out those videos. There's really great dialogues with Pastor Scott, Pastor Sean, Pastor Peter discussing those issues. we got a few questions I'd like us to get to. Yeah, let's do rapid fire. Yeah, rapid fire. Uh, starting with Mac D, he says, can feelings be deceiving? I'm um, a misfit, hmm. uh, I think is what it says. Let me zoom that in here. I am turning 49 very soon, <laughs> and I'm starting to, my eyes are finally starting to find text. It's hard to read now up close. <laughs> I am a misfit, but embrace it because it's what is different from the world, knowing that God was also rejected. So Jesus is my hope, and I don't feel alone. So I guess the question is can feelings be deceiving? If you feel like a misfit, but you embrace it, uh, how do you handle those emotions? Let's say you're somebody who is struggling with connection and identity, and are you just using God, as atheists proclaim, as a drug to just anesthetize me temporarily, or is there something uniquely different about embracing Christian faith versus other things? Right. So um, the answer to your first question is, yeah, uh, emotions very often are deceiving. So emotions are not good or bad. They're just an innate part of being made in the image and likeness of God, right? So because God loves, love comes, the ability to love comes with the ability to emote, right? So the more you care about something, the stronger your emotions will be toward that thing. If I really love my wife and she dies tomorrow, I'm going to be grieving. I'm going to be sad. Uh, if I didn't care about her and she died, I wouldn't feel sad. Uh, if someone threatens her, I'm going to get very angry because I love her so much. If I didn't care about her, I wouldn't get angry, right? And so on and so forth. So it's part of being made in the image of God. It's part of containing love within ourselves. However, because we're fallen and our love is fallen, our emotions are equally fallen. It doesn't make them bad. It just makes them fallen. And therefore, we need some sort of a standard by which we test our emotions. Is this a right emotion to have? 
by the way, just intellectually knowing whether or not it's a right emotion to have doesn't take it away, but at least it gives you ability to fight it, right? A worldview that can help you resist your emotional pull as opposed to being cold, uh, captivated by them. So but that you respond rather than react in that emotion. That's exactly correct. Um, now, the next point is ultimate meaning. What does ultimate meaning give you? It gives you a bedrock from which you can endure any type of uh, falling out. So what I said about people today who don't have an ultimate meaning but have an anchor to this world through their communities, what I meant is once you take away those communities, they don't have an ultimate meaning that's going to catch them when that net falls out, right? So what Viktor Frankl realizes that people who were brought into the concentration camps that didn't have some sort of an ultimate meaning, once their families were killed, they had nothing to live for and the bottom fell out of their universe and they just wanted to die, right? So having an ultimate meaning gives you a safeguard against anything the world can throw against you, including being rejected, right? As you pointed out that Jesus was. That doesn't make it less of a tragedy though, right? Jesus being rejected by the world was a tragic thing. He grieved and mourned over it. It's not a good thing that he was rejected. Uh, it's not a good thing that his disciples ran out on him at the end. So we can have consolation uh, when we feel rejected or like we don't fit in, but that's not a reason to reject community as a whole. It's just a reason to say something tragic has happened to me, but I need to get back in it. You know, I, I have been created for community. I've been created to love others as I have been loved. And so therefore, I'm going to find a community that I can develop within and I, that I can love and care for and fit within that purview, right? We're called the body of Christ. That means that you need to adhere to the other members of the body or other, otherwise you're being robbed of your individuality that God has in store for you. So uh, if you're in a situation where the possibility of community has been robbed from you, then you have great consolation in Christ and that will save you from the despair that would follow normally. Uh, so if you're in jail or prison wrongfully, but oftentimes as Christians, we think that, well, because God gives me a safeguard from this thing, I don't need to fight against it. And that's a very foolish way to look at life. Uh, so if I were to say, well, you know, I'm sick with cancer. However, I'm going to go be with God if I die. So I'm not going to do anything, any mitigating things to prevent my death. That's a very foolish way to look at your life, right? That, that's a tragic thing that's happened to you. And you should do everything you can to try to prevent that from happening because life is good. He's, God has given it to us and we should preserve it as long as it doesn't morally, uh, uh, morally compromise us to do so. Uh, so in the same way, if you have a lack of community, that's tragic. That's a sad thing. God can sustain you within it, but he also desires for you to find someone, some group of people that can hold you up. Hmm. So find, I, I encourage you strongly to find a local church and try to to fit inside of it best you can, find their events that they do, try to develop those relationships as best as you can. Yeah, thank you, Peter. And thank you, Mac, for that question. And he mm. followed up by, or she <clears throat> followed up by, the heart is deceitful, deceitfully wicked. Who could know it? Uh, can you break this down? Romans one twenty nine is a similar to how we are living nowadays or heading in this direction. I think you kind of covered that. Uh, Gavin wants to know, should we be like the church of Cappadocia? I have read that in the Bible... What is the difference between Cappadocia and Laodicea, thanks? Hmm. So, if I remember correctly, Cappadocia is one of the churches in Revelation, correct? I believe that's what uh, Gavin might be referring to as the seven churches. Yeah. Um, you know, to be honest, 
I would need to actually kind of read through those to give you a good answer, and uh, we don't really have any time. So I encourage you, Gavin, ask it again tomorrow, and they will they will answer that for you. Uh, going on, um, what's your take on salvation? This is Alex wants to know what's your take on salvation. Can one lose their salvation? Uh, yeah, this is a very complicated question, but a very good one. Um, can we lose our salvation? So there, there are two major thoughts within Christianity that I'm going to break down right now. The first one would be the Calvinistic Reformed thought, which is that you cannot lose your salvation, that God has elected and predestined those whom he has chosen, and therefore, if he has elected you, he has predestined you, and you have received his grace, you cannot resist it, and you cannot fall out of it, and therefore, once saved, always saved. The other way of thinking about it is Arminians, and Arminians believe that you can lose it, right? And actually, many uh, denominations of Christianity throughout the world believe this way, and that is that I can do something that causes me to lose my salvation. Usually, the thought is sin. I can sin away my salvation. I can go into a state of backsliding that's so severe that I've renounced my faith in some way, and I've lost my salvation. The really hyper-Arminian churches, it's like you could lose your salvation by yelling at your wife tomorrow, and then you're going to have to get resaved, and you know, it's like, it's pretty yeah. intensive. Some some traditions teach that so much as sinning against the known will of God, when you right. disobey what you know God's will is, you not only lose your sanctification, but you lose your the Holy Spirit, you know, the yeah, Holy you, Spirit leads and you. And you have to renew yourself, and depending on how much you've sinned, some of those denominations actually said you can't renew yourself to salvation because mm-hmm. of Hebrews 6. So those are the two major, uh, I guess, frames of reference that you can go into. Now, I could find scriptural references for both of them. Um, I, I think you can make a pretty solid case for both ideologies within, uh, within the faith. Where I fall is I have not done enough research to tell you definitively whether or not I believe you can lose your salvation. And the reason why I haven't dedicated myself to that study is because functionally wouldn't change the way that I live. And and what I mean by that is whether or not I can lose my salvation, if I'm going from the Calvinistic side of it, then if I fall into a state of intensive sin and backsliding, what a Calvinist would say to me is, well, you were never saved in the first place. But if an an Arminian and I fall into a state of backsliding, then they would say, well, you were saved, but you've lost your salvation well, what's the solution for me in both those frames of reference? Well, you need to be renewed to salvation. You need to repent. You need to go back to God. Because that's the solution for the problem, regardless of which worldview I'm coming from, I don't really see much of a reason to figure out which worldview is correct. Um, I've heard both arguments, and again, I, I haven't really come down to a belief system in either one. Functionally, what I believe is that my goal in life is not to avoid damnation, but it's to enjoy my salvation. I want to work out the salvation that God placed within me. I want to draw as close to God as possible. I don't want to think about, well, how much can I fall before I lose my eternal salvation, or how much can I draw away from God before he has cast me aside? Uh, And and I know that a lot of times we're thinking about an individual in our lives who has fallen away, but again, functionally, the advice that you're going to give to that person is going to be the same. You need to have a relationship with Jesus. You need to pursue him as though you can be brought into a saving relationship with him. Well, thanks for that question, and uh, I think we can probably end on this one, if we can get through it even. (laughs) Uh, Adila wants to know, how can deity and humanity be one person incarnate? 
is this like Krishna? Thanks. Uh, no, very good question. It's it's not like Krishna. So in Hindu theology, the gods, they're taking on avatars. So they're not actually becoming a human being. They're utilizing an avatar that allows them to represent themselves on the mortal plane, right? So that that, that when Krishna incarnates or takes on this avatar— Which was the god of—he was an incarnation of Vishnu, one, right. of the, one of the supreme— one of the supreme gods. <laughs> That's right. Uh, god, the unique thing about God is that he actually took on flesh. He became incarnate. Uh, so when we say that God did it, it is a mystery, right? It is something that has to be done by an omnipotent being because no other being could do that, right? I can't take on the nature of something else just by willing it. But God seems to have that ability to do so. Uh, part of it seems to be his unification with mankind and making us in his image and likeness. Because it says in the book of Hebrews, he doesn't give aid to angels. So it seems to suggest that God could not have taken on an image of an angel if he wanted to. Uh, part of it just seems to be his omnipotence, the fact that he is all-powerful, and so he can do that. Mm. But it is a unique thing that God did. He did actually take on flesh. He incorporated humanity into his divinity. Adila, uh, <clears throat> chime in tomorrow, and we'll uh, readdress that question, because understanding how Jesus could be both divine and human mm. at the same time is a critical question to understanding the Christian faith. So chime in tomorrow. Maybe we can tackle that. In a little uh, bit more detail, yeah. yeah. Thank you for uh, being with us today. We'll see you again tomorrow. Same place, same time. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.